Welcome to the State of Minds podcast, where we pick the brains of the best minds in neuroscience today. This is a podcast of the Graduate School of Systemic Neurosciences at the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich, made possible thanks to the generous support of Lena Beetle and Sven Schwann. We have an interview with David Reddish, who is a distinguished McKnight professor at the Department of Neuroscience at the University of Minnesota. Not only is he a highly successful scientist, but also an accomplished poet and playwright. Please enjoy our wide-ranging conversation with Professor Reddish. agreeing to do the interview. I really appreciate it. Uh, sure. Um, it looked like looking at your CV that you, you've inhabited uh, computer science departments for the first half of your career. Like first at the Johns Hopkins for your bachelor's and then Carnegie Mellon for your master's and PhD. So when and how did you become interested in neuroscience? Well, I started actually uh, as a writer. I'm actually mm-hmm. a poet and a playwright by background. So at Johns Hopkins, I double majored in what's called the writing seminars mm-hmm. and the computer science, and I was doing computer science. And I was doing, at the time we called it neural nets, and now it's mm-hmm. kind of deep learning is the big word these days. Um, I went to Carnegie Mellon to work with Dave Turetsky, uh, in large part because he was the person doing the boundary between symbolic and sub-symbolic artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And we were working on um, uh, metaphor and language and doing models of prepositions. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what is the word, what does it mean to go around something, right? You can walk around a park, you can go around a, you can go around, you know, around an obstacle. What is, how do you represent the word around? That was what we were working on. Um, and then um, Dave came back one, Dave Turetsky came back from some conference one time, basically talking about this new thing that the neuroscientists that he had met there were talking about called LTP. Now, of course, this is mid nineties. LTP was well known in neuroscience, you know, but we kind of learned about it and uh, he came back and I, he said, they've got the weights now for the weight matrix. Mm-hmm. And we started looking at uh, neuro- and models of neuroscience. Um, we kind of switched. Mm-hmm. And I've always taken that to heart because Dave and this other grad student, a guy named Hank Wan, who unfortunately passed away, uh, and myself, the three of us, sat in Introduction to Neuroscience together. So my advisor literally sat next to me in the first neuroscience class. And I've always taken that as a, a, an important step, you know, the, the willingness to, to switch ideas. And if this is the right idea over here, go do that, because that's where the question is. Um, at Carnegie Mellon University of Pittsburgh, they had a new, what's called an Eigert grant, which is a... National Science Foundation, mm-hmm. the American NSF, um, grant for graduate students. And it was for 
bringing together the computer and psychology grad students at Carnegie Mellon with the neuroscience grad students and actually the math grad students at the University of Pittsburgh. And that program called Neural Processes in Cognition became the Center for the Neural Basis of Cognition, CNBC, which is now a very large program at Carnegie Mellon and University of Pittsburgh. And actually, I was part of the first class of CNBC. Um, and it was an exciting time. It was to be able to bring in these computer science ways of thinking about problems to neuroscience questions seemed very, very new at the time. So this, to give you a timeline, this is 1993, 1994. So I started grad school in 1991. So we're talking kind of mid, early 90s. Um, I did essentially all modeling as a graduate student. So I graduated in 97. Um, and I went to um, work with Carol Barnes and Bruce McNaughton at the University of Arizona to do experiments. And I, I did it because I had been told, I think quite correctly, that you couldn't just do modeling. Mm -hmm. You had to do some experiments or nobody would ever listen to you. And that was what I was told. And I went to do... So the, the, I went to do my time, I used to call it, right? I was going to do, do my time is get an experiment, get one experiment done, and then I could come back and go back to the modeling. That's the real, that was where the real action was. Um, and um, what I discovered is I actually liked doing the experiments. I loved the idea that I could come in with a theory, make a prediction, and then go test that prediction explicitly. And, um, you know, really discover things. Uh, and um, I remember when I was interviewing for jobs, I, I won't say what university this was, but there was a university and they, they, you know, at the end of the interview, the chair of the department said, well, you realize this is a theory job. We'll get you, you know, we can get you a postdoc, mm -hmm. we can get you, but we don't have a lab. We don't have money for startup." Right? This is not an experimental job. And I said, no, 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 I need a lab. And it was literally on the flight home that I realized what I had said. Right? That I had realized that on the flight home, no, I've gone over to this dark side where I really, I want to be doing the experiments in my lab. So it was a journey, you know, from, from you know, and, and, and for me, what excites me is discovery. And that's my personal you know, engineering is great and I, I think it's fantastic and there's lots of people who who do great things mm -hmm. in engineering and building new better mousetraps and all that kind of stuff and that's good and important but what what excites me personally is discovering new fundamental truths about the world and so for me the neuroscience really had that more than computer science but a lot of the neuroscience that I do uh, a lot of the toolbox that we have looking at neuroscience comes from that computer science perspective. So you did some theoretical work during your PhD with David Retsky and then experimental work at uh, Carl Barnes lab. And now your own lab is famous for a rather unconventional approach, I would say, <laughs> studying mental time travel, vicarious trial and error, regret in rats, uh, covert cognitive processes, which is not run-of-the-mill 
research program. So how did you define your own research program when you started as a PI? So I didn't. That's the short answer, mm -hmm. right? Uh, in large part, like I was saying about what, 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 with Dave, with Dave Tresky, where we, we switched. Mm -hmm. And what I've been is very open to switching, and that's really been the key. So when I came in as a, as a new professor, I, decided I was going to take the techniques we had developed in hippocampus, not, we, not me personally, but the field had developed, things like multi-textured recording, uh, decoding of um, positions, um, looking at what at the time we were calling activity packets, which mm -hmm. is basically an ensemble analysis, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, taking spatial tasks, so you separate things separately across space. And I was going to take that into the dorsal striatum. And the idea being there wasn't a lot of people doing dorsal striatum. There were a few very, very good labs. Um, you know, people like Ian Graybill, who do fantastic work. Uh, but there were very few labs, as compared to Hippocampus, where there were many, many, right? And there was a lot of competition. So we, we went in to do dorsal striatum. My first paper out of my lab is actually dorsal striatum, recording papers with a guy named Neil Schmitzer-Torbert, who was my first graduate student. Um, and then I was actually going to give one of my first talks. I said, okay, we know what's going on in dor Here's dorsal striatum. And I was about to say, you know, I was writing it. I was mm -hmm. saying, okay, and then I'll say, this is what happens in hippocampus. And I realized nobody had ever run hippocampus on a similar, on that kind mm -hmm. of a decision task. So I convinced a graduate student, a guy named Adam Johnson, to do that. And um, Adam actually, you know, did that. He went and he recorded Hippocampus. And I love this story because he, and it's particularly for, you know, new graduate students who are frustrated with their projects, right? Adam spent years complaining, saying, I'm just replicating what Neil did. There's nothing interesting here. You know, it's all just place cells. We know this, you know. And then one day Adam comes into my office and says, Dave, my rats are doing mental time travel. And that's my reaction, right? You're laughing. I, I think I said, we don't use words like that in public, is I think what I said. But I, I basically said, no way. I said, rats don't do that, right? Um, what he had seen is he had seen that at the moment of choice, there were these sequences running ahead of the rat back and forth because he'd looked at decoding. And so, you know, we started looking. We really did all the controls. And that became that Johnson and Reddish 2007 paper you know, that really was about um, decision-making. And now we could look at really comparing hippocampus and striatum. Striatum doesn't show those kinds of sequences. Striatum looks about, it's about situation action pairs. And so we have a 2010 paper where we compare uh, dorsal striatum, hippocampus, and actually ventral striatum, nucleus accumbens, that a postdoc, Matt Vandermeer, had been recording from. And we see different information processing. And really, it's that view of it as information processing, which comes from the computer science, right? That's the, that's the algorithm data analysis stuff that the computer science world lives in. That, excuse me, that, um, we, uh, that we are looking at, and that really allowed us to take that kind of a perspective. Um, and then the other thing that happened is there was a uh, a cognitive science program at, at Minnesota, where, where I am, and that's where we're all based uh, on this stuff. And that 
cognitive science program had started looking at kind of real definitions of psychological, what, what, what I now understand the correct terminology is constructs. And I really like this word construct. Uh, the idea that there's a psychological, there's a construct is, a, is a, a definition of a term. And actually one of the things that people always complain about is say, well, we don't know how to talk about psychology or neuroscience. And I don't think that's true. I think we actually know a lot about it. But it's about what are the constructs. And they compare it to physics. And I point out, you know, in, in 1600, physics had constructs of momentum and constructs of zodiac. Zodiac's not very useful, so they drop it, right? Now, momentum's still a construct. It is a construct. It's a, a way of looking at physical reality, right, that we can talk about and we can use in our definitions. So, you know, what, is, what does it mean to regret something, right? So when another graduate student, Adam Steiner, came into my office and said, my rats are showing regret, I was prepared for that because Adam Johnson had already pushed me over the mental time travel line, right? I said, okay, wait, let's be careful with the term regret. What does it mean, right? What is the psychological construct of regret? And if we have that, what would we have to look for at the neural level? So well, you're right. I mean, a lot of what my, my lab has been looking at has been this kind of boundary between neuroscience and psychology and, and really asking what is the underlying information processing of those psychological constructs. I don't know, does that help? <laughs> no, definitely. And reading your papers, it shows, and I cannot help but marvel at the design of behavioral tasks. Red Restaurant is definitely my all-time favorite. Yeah, I love Restaurant Row is my favorite. The, how, oh. how do you design behavioral tasks? And given that you have papers discussing how rats value time differently in different tasks, how do you get an interpretation that really gets to animal phenomenology? So I would start by saying that we define tasks, I think, I think we define tasks ethologically. Mm -hmm. It's a large part of what we've done. There, there are three things we try to do with a task. One is to separate out as best possible, and I mean separate out spatially, mm -hmm. the different components of the task. Uh, the second thing is to really, the second thing is to make it sure that the animals can actually do the task. And that is a big th issue. I mean, there's a lot of tasks we've tried to do that animals can't do. Mm -hmm. And when I say animals, I mean all kinds of animals. And we can talk about translating from rats to humans and the fact that we have some tasks that our rats do really well that humans don't. <laughs> can you give an example? Yeah, so for example, and in a large part it's about the ethology mm -hmm. of the task. So um, we tried to do, we have a delay discounting task, an mm -hmm. experiential delay discounting task that we did for we do for rats, which has two choices. And, and actually, it's again an example of getting the ethology right. There's a classic delay discounting task, which is called the Mazur adjusting delay discounting task. You basically have two sides. On one side, you get food after kind of a short amount of time, like say one food pellet after one second. And on the other side, you get a more food, more reward, but after a delay. And the idea is that you titrate the delay based on the choice of the animal. Mm -hmm. 
So if the animal takes the shorter side, make the delay on the delayed side shorter, it makes it better, more valuable. If you, the animal chooses the delayed side, make it worse, make, increase the delay. And theoretically, the animal should figure out which side is delayed, uh, you know, titrate by picking one side or the other, and then alternate between choices. In practice, there's a beautiful paper by uh, Rudolfo Cardinal with Trevor Robbins showing that at the lever, using levers, yes, on average, you might get impulsive or not impulsive animals that you can measure, but from a moment to moment, you can't see delay discounting. It doesn't look different from random. And, and we've seen that too. We, we, had a, we, we looked at some lever data and we found the same results. Mm -hmm. Basically, they perseverate on levers. They push the lever to delay really high, and then they push the delay really low. And at a moment by moment, it doesn't work. We then translated it so that they went to two different locations in space. Right? So you go to one side of a team A's to get the shorter delay or the other side to get the longer delay, and now they look perfect. They alternate, then they titrate, and then they alternate. Right? So we can get that... Uh, uh, get the ethology kind of right there, right? And then they do the task very nicely. Uh, we tried to do a spatial adjusting delay using virtual reality and joysticks with undergraduates. Mm -hmm. For we started with money and didn't we couldn't get the money to work. Then we tried pick. You know, uh, we never actually tried food because I was told I wasn't allowed to starve the undergrads. Um, not that we starved the rats. We actually, you know, I, I should say in in all of our. Uh, animal data, I'm not studying stress, and stress changes your behavior. So having un not stressed animals is very important for decision making. And I'm, I'm very comfortable with, with how we treat our animals. I think that's very important to treat them appropriately and be very careful with that. Um, but So we never tried food with the mm -hmm. undergrads. But, and I should say, the, the rats get their full food for the day on the task. They have no mm -hmm. problem with that. It's very, they maintain their weight and their healthiness and all that stuff very easily. Um, but we couldn't get the undergrads to work for money. We couldn't get them to work for, we actually tried pictures. And I'll talk about the pictures problem in a second. So the money problem was either we paid them too much, at which point they wanted everything, or we paid them too little and they didn't care. And getting that balance was really difficult, particularly because it would matter also how much money that undergrad had. Right? Some undergrads come in with a poor background or a rich background, and that, that just didn't work. We couldn't get it to, to stable, at least in our hands. Um, we did try pictures, but it depends greatly on what pictures you like. Right? Um, you know, I don't want to make assumptions about what pictures you mm -hmm. like or don't like, and unfortunately, you have to make that assumption. So we couldn't get the delay discounting. We've actually never gotten that experiential delay. Mm -hmm. Other labs have done experiential delay, and reported results that look good and I certainly don't I certainly believe those results I don't disbelieve mm -hmm. them I think they're I'm sure they're valid given the labs we're talking about um, but we never got it to work but on restaurant row so restaurant row is this task where the rats run in a loop and um, they pass four different flavors of food uh, kind of at, at each corner think of it as a square with spokes looking out to the side. And as they enter each restaurant, as they pass by each spoke, they get a uh, tone, a pitch. The pitch of the tone tells them how long they would have to wait for food. So mm -hmm. a high pitch might mean 30 seconds. Is it worth 30 seconds of your time to wait for that cherry-flavored food pellet? 
or do you want to skip it and try your luck at the banana restaurant next door? And they have an hour, so so it's an economic task. They're spending time to get food. And I should point out, the reason we built this task was not to look at economics. Mm-hmm. It was not to look at you know, handling delays. It was because we wanted to control for this regret question, and we needed future and past. And we needed to actually look at a task where we had the, the restaurant they were considering, the next restaurant that they were worried about, the, one, the restaurant they had just left, and an opposite mm-hmm. control. That's why we had four. And we built the task for that. Turns out it's an excellent task for all these other things. And we can play neuroeconomics games and all that kind of stuff. That's really exciting. And we were trying to figure out how to translate that task into humans. And um, a grad student who was co-advised by myself and another professor named Angus McDonald, the student's name is Sam Abram. Mm-hmm. And Sam, uh, she came up with a brilliant idea. She we. I remember one day she's sitting in my office and she says, well, wait, what do humans forage for? And the two of us, you know, both say, videos on the internet. <laughs> right? That's what undergrads forage for. They forage for videos on the internet. It's true. So we created a task with four video galleries, right? There's a, a kitten's gallery and a, obviously got to do cat videos, right? A kitten's gallery and a landscape's gallery and a... Um, bike fail, you know, this kind of ride your bike off the roof and person crashes and some people think it's funny. Um, And a uh, dance, a ballroom dance video. And the question now is you come to the gallery, you get a download bar. Are you willing to wait 30 seconds for your four second cat video? Or are you going to skip it and try your luck at the, you know, bike fail video next door? And now humans look just like rats. And we actually have second and third and fourth order effects. We can do fMRI in the humans. We can do recordings in the rats. We've actually done optogenetics in mice on the same task, and they all look identical, right? So there's a journey on this, right? We designed the restaurant row task to look at regret questions. That turned out to open up economic Mm -hmm. questions. We were able to translate into humans by getting the ethology right. And now we have this, you know, we can look cross species, right? Now we're starting to work with another lab that works on monkeys that wants to try to develop it for monkeys. We don't do monkeys in my lab, but this other lab wants to do, wants to do and see if they can get the same kinds of questions. Can you get monkeys doing this restaurant row task? And I think it'd be very exciting, you know, how does the economic behavior change as you move across these different species? It becomes fascinating. Yeah, and it's, it's a very rare opportunity to have one task that really works in right. different species. And yeah. speaking about translation, um, in your 2013 book, The Mind Within the Brain, you synthesized your extensive research on decision-making. In your personal life, does the knowledge of habit formation and decision-making processes change how you make decisions? Yes. <laughs> I'm not going to say it makes it better. <laughs> Um, what it does do um, is, I don't know, I mean, it's hard to say does it change how I make decisions because it's hard to look at oneself that way. But it does change how I appreciate the decisions that, get, that I make. And one of the things I try to push in that, in that 2013 book 
is the idea that all of these different decision-making systems are you, right? Mm -hmm. So the book makes the argument that there are essentially these four action selection systems, a, a deliberative system where you are imagining the future, deciding what of those futures you'd like, kind of creating a simulated world and running it through to be evaluated. Uh, a habit system, which is basically um, learning to recognize a pattern and release an action chain. Think a sports figure, yeah. you know, uh, you know, hitting a hitting a baseball, throwing a football. Uh, I guess you know, heading a football since I'm in Germany. Um, uh, you know, or a, a dancer or music, mm -hmm. right? The third system is uh, we have to include reflexes because that's an action, and understanding these behaviors includes reflexes. Um, and then a fourth system that is kind of an instinctual, uh, species-specific behavior that you learn when to release, which turns out to involve not only Pavlov's dog salivating or running from the lion, but also human social interactions turn out to be this fourth system. And one of the things I point out in the book is you are all four of these systems. And a lot of people will come along and say, you know, that you're some sort of superficial surface and that the habit isn't you or the, the being afraid isn't you. And I say, no, the person who's afraid is you. You are the one who has this irrational fear, right? Well, that's part of who you are. You can change who you are, but it is part of that integrated person. And that changes how I look at myself. That certainly is true. Um, you know, my, my habits and uh, instinctual responses, um, I kind of accept as part of me. Maybe that's a, a good way to say it. I'm not sure if it's successfully changed my behavior. <laughs> Although I, I suppose, you know, one of the things that is a consequence of this is that changing how you ask the question changes how the behavior comes, right? This is a, a new thing actually being pushed very in behavioral economics called nudge. Um, and the idea is by changing the question, you can actually change behavior without forcing it, hmm. right? Um, uh, one of the examples we give is um, I can, you, it turns out one of the best treatments, for example, for drug addiction is a thing called contingency management, which is basically you pay people not to take drugs. Now, you haven't prevented them from taking drugs. You've said, look, if you don't take drugs, you get some money. And the usual explanation for this is you've made the drugs more expensive. Turns out that doesn't actually fit the data. What it almost certainly is doing is changing the question that's being asked. So now the question is not, should I do drugs or not? It's, should I do drugs or should I go get my gold star? And that gold star becomes capable of drawing your attention away because mm -hmm. you shifted the, the system, the decision system, from an instinctual or which may have learned an over-motivation or a habit system into this deliberative planning system. And so there's a lot of cases, I think, where you can do that kind of shift if you know that it exists. And you can say to yourself, well, I'm going to make it hard for myself to do this habit. Right? I know that 
I'm going to do this habit if I don't, you know, that I, you know, I'm going to watch this TV show if I make it easy to turn the TV on. So put yourself into a place where that becomes harder, right? You know, don't leave the television up where, you know, you do most of your work, right? Pre-commitment. It's exactly, pre-commitment. And in fact, we have several papers on pre-commitment. Uh, and I should say, you're, you know, that's the case where understanding how pre-commitment works, I've gotten better at doing pre-commitment because, I've, because of the papers we've done. Uh, that is true. I, can, I won't use those in a public podcast. <laughs> but there are definitely cases where I've, I, I've, I've changed how I do pre-commitment. But exactly, I mean, understanding the mechanisms of those decision systems has definitely, you know, would definitely enable, has for me personally, enabled such things. Reading your books, it's always fascinating to see how you not only treat the subject deeply, but also bring an incredible breadth of knowledge to frame the problem. What is the book outside of neuroscience that influenced your thinking about the subject the most? The most? I don't know. I don't know that I could pick one. Um, what? I, in fact, I'm positive I cannot pick one. But what I have, what I would say is, liter- reading literature has been the key, mm-hmm. um, for me at least personally. Um, you know, really, in a sense, um, a narrative, whether it be a novel or a play or a movie, is about the human condition, and. I mean, I, I always point out, I, I, I think it's in the book, but I, I've certainly pointed out in, in other discussions, that we will, as readers, tolerate massive changes in science, but we will not tolerate a change in human behavior. You know, we can handle magic, right? Harry Potter can have magic. That's okay. Or, you know, science fiction. You know, there can be a superhero, right? Uh, one of my colleagues, a guy named Jim Kakalios, talks about uh, the physics of superheroes. And he has this great story about how he basically says, let's assume that we're allowed to change one law of physics. And then the question is, you know, what, what, what follows from that? But what I mean when I say this is that, you know, we're okay with changing those laws. Like, um, oh, there was a great example I, I had recently. There was a recent, one of those recent superhero movies, uh, X-Men, I think it was... X-Men, I think it was X-Men Apocalypse, but I may be wrong about that. It was one of these, right? Mm -hmm. And there's this one where Magneto, who is able to pull metal because he controls magnetic forces, he can pull metal out of the ground and he's become super powerful and he's like ripping the Golden Gate Bridge apart in San Francisco and that's all fine. Everybody's comfortable with that. But the key scene is as he's, you know, his rage has burst out, right? His rage has to be real. Right? In fact, one of the stories about Magneto is how where his rage comes from and the reality of that rage. And yet uh, Mystique, who's essentially his girlfriend, has to come up and she has an interaction with him. Right? And they talk while he's raging. Right? She's trying to talk him down. He can rip the Golden Gate Bridge apart. We're okay with that. But if that interaction between those two characters doesn't match, you know somebody talking somebody else down from rage, people will walk out of the theater, right? 
and whether it be movies or literature, you know, I mean, we still read the Odyssey and the Iliad, right? You know, um, the the uh, you know the Iliad, for example. These characters are so real. We understand, you know, uh, um, um, Achilles' petulance in in the Iliad, or you know, what drives Odysseus home. And in fact, we understand his his PTSD-like rage at the end when he finally gets home and kills all the suitors who've, you know, you know, uh, who've been basically bothering his wife <laughs> while he's been gone because they thought he was dead, right? Um, those, those human interactions, uh, to me are, are key. Um, the other thing that, you know, is poetry also, you know, um, and I find that great poems are about momentary observations, right? About a reality of seeing something a little differently. Um, and for me, that that literature and actually reading literature has been, uh, uh, I would say that would be the, the key outside of science. That's wonderful to hear. I almost expected you to say something from computer science, so it's very refreshing to, to have someone speak openly about their extra scientific activities. Um, now, just three rapid-fire questions to uh -oh. finish. Uh, which skill or skills you wish you had acquired earlier on in your career? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, that I wish I had acquired. Mm -hmm. Time management. Time management and people management has been two skills that took me and I'm not sure I'm good at them even now, but took me a long time. I'm, people management would be is a big one, particularly as a professor. Um, but um, that's in part, you know. I would also I would say you know if you know as a talking to a student, I would say actually the most important skill is writing. But I actually came out of a writing background. Um, and I, and I did acquire that, that skill early. Um, and I would say that's the most important, is actually the ability to, to write and to write what I call the vomit draft, uh, which is a term coming from Samuel Beckett, um, who is, of course, very famous for writing very short books, but apparently wrote hundreds of thousands of words, you know, huge tomes, and burned most of it, right? Try, Get it. fail, try again, fail better. Exactly, exactly. Getting to the point where you can write a 10-page paper, look at it, go, oh, that's not the order I want. Throw it away and write it again. And that's something that, that I was taught as a writer to be able to do. To me, that's the most important skill that I wish students had. Right? For me personally, people management, time management, those are the ones that I'm still working on. And what is the most successful theory in neuroscience today, in your opinion? Hodgkin-Huxley. I knew it. I, I almost think I should 
like put a prohibition on Hodgkin no, Huxley. No, <laughs> I don't. I don't want you to put a prohibition on Hodgkin Huxley there because not enough people think Hodgkin Huxley is a theory, hmm. right? I think one of the real problems with the way neuroscience sees theory is that once it becomes part of the mainstream literature, like Hodgkin Huxley, it's not computational anymore. It's not theory anymore. But actually, Hodgkin Huxley is classic computational neuroscience. They had, it's a theory, they actually worked out computations, they do simulations, right? And in fact, they do extensive simulations using computers, right? Those computers were called graduate students. <laughs> um, Right. But they were doing, they did extensive, uh, you know, computational simulations. And I think it's important to recognize Hodgkin Huxley is a success. And one of the things I, I mean, one of my, my issues with a lot of the whole theoretical, and I actually should say I prefer the term theoretical neuroscience to computational neuroscience, um, but the whole kind of theory computation issues is people don't look long enough time periods, Right. We have had tremendous success with things like attractor networks and um, actually the you know hippocampal place cell literature is a place you know the the cortical networks um, striatal uh, reinforcement learning the reinforcement learning literature these are all wonderfully complex and there's you know I could pick a dozen like this where there's currently a very active computational theoretical experimental interaction but you know to really say you know what's successful what do we know mm -hmm. you know really you got to go 20 30 40 years back right it, there it, it takes time too much of science today is asking is the paper i read yesterday correct well i don't know Ask me in a decade when a dozen people have built on it and have done things on it, you know, then we'll know, right? We'll know not actually whether, because correct is the wrong word. We'll know the space within which this works, right? So does the hippocampus contain place cells? Well, what is a place cell? A place cell is this very complex entity that we now understand a lot about, right? We can talk about how do these things actually interact what is the mechanism what's the information processing you know and we can make predictions that are testable that come out to be true in incredible depth right and that's in some sense you know what it's all about how does that does that make sense <laughs> it certainly does and just to finish off on i guess prospective predictive note what is the recent piece of data that you're most excited about from your lab or from any other lab? From my lab or from any other lab? <laughs> um, I, I would, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer that over not a kind of immediate data point, but over a range. And to me, the most exciting thing is the data on morality which is the data that looking at these decision systems under moral mm -hmm. questions turns out to really open up in fascinating ways how humans treat morality. And that has a huge 
implication with uh, tribalism and with uh, social interaction. And I mean, the discovery, which really was a shock to the field about, must have been about 15 years ago or so, that a lot of the moral decisions that humans make come from that instinctual mm -hmm. system, not from deliberation. Right? You go back philosophically, back to Augustine and Freud and people like that, right? It's all the deliberation system that matters. But actually, the human social interaction of saying it's, you need to share with your friends, that actually is this instinctual system. To me, that's a major breakthrough that we really have not completely processed the consequences of. To me, that's the most exciting data point. Now, it's not from my lab, <laughs> but that's the one that I'm you know, most intrigued by right now. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast from. 